Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us in this broadcast today. We're in the middle of a series entitled Common Christian Problems. Christians have problems just like non-Christians have problems. And today is part two of a unit of episodes regarding suicide prevention. And we're talking about suicide stemming from the coronavirus unemployment spike and the stress related to it. Now, last episode, I went a little bit out on a limb. I don't know if you know, but a lot of broadcasters and a lot of article writers don't like to kind of step out and make predictions. And I don't either. I mean, I think it's, you know, kind of a foolish exercise in many instances. But I am willing to step out and make a prediction if I see there's good, reasonable expectation for something to occur, particularly things that hurt people. I don't like to see people hurt. And it really impacted me when I was a boy, my Boy Scout training, the old Boy Scouts, as far as being prepared for those things. So my broadcast last episode was trying to emphasize that we are in the midst of a twofold crisis, not a single crisis, but a twofold crisis. And the first and primary, and it's pretty obvious, but we're in the middle of a health pandemic stemming from a nasty, highly contagious virus and an economic disaster resulting from the extensive lockdowns. And that is leading to serious depression and suicides. And last episode, I said, watch out if next fall the coronavirus comes back again, like many viruses do in late fall, less sunshine, less vitamin D, viruses just love late fall and dark months of winter. So if the coronavirus comes back and we go into another lockdown and kind of finishing off a, a pandemic of unemployment, then I said we could see an incredible spike in suicides. And just between the recording of the episode last week and today, all I can say is, boy, was I wrong. I was expecting something to hit particularly strong next fall, late next fall or as we go into the winter. And really, um, there's no prediction to be made. It's, it's here right now as I'm speaking. As I mentioned last time, an, an unemployment increase of 1% leads to about the same increase in suicides. It's actually 1% of unemployment spike equals a 0.078% increase in suicides. It's about one-on-one. -on -one. And one in three people who die by suicide is unemployed at the time of their deaths. But this is what I found out just between the recording of last episode and today. First in California, a physician reports that he has seen a year's worth of suicides in the last four weeks during the coronavirus lockdown. And remember, California, 
is one of those states I believe the governor has extended the lockdown for another 90 days. I sure hope they're prepared for what is happening right now. I also read this week in the Washington Examiner that more people died of suicide in a single Tennessee county during late March than of the coronavirus across the entire state of Tennessee. In other words, the rate of suicides in one Tennessee county was greater than the coronavirus deaths in the entire state. Now, am I trying to say that the mental health crisis stemming from the unemployment crisis, stemming from the lockdowns, are the only problem? No, that is not what I'm saying. Is my experience, both in theology and practical living, that many people have a very difficult time keeping two ideas in their minds at the same time. I'm saying we have a twin crisis. It's like the two sides of a coin. Now, you can only look at one side of the coin to really examine it at a time. But only looking at one side of the coin will prevent you from really examining and knowing what the coin is about. You need to look at both sides. And this came uh, just to this morning from the Washington Post. The federal government has a distress hotline that people can call or text to if they're in distress from a natural or human-caused disaster. And the Washington Post said that during April, their text messages from Americans in serious distress increased 1,000-fold. So I was wrong in predicting this. Um, No, it's here. It's right now. It's something that uh, we're, as a nation, and this is going on around the world, but let's at least start where we are right here in our own country. But people are listening to this broadcast around the world. We have to do something now because as a culture, as a country, we're in brand new territory. And we should have known this because, you know, history is very good to inform us. It doesn't mean we're condemned to repeat history, but as many people said, it does rhyme. And, you know, the highest suicide rate in America's history was during the Great Depression. And after the stock market crash of 1929, the suicide rate increased by 50 percent. Well, unemployment now is reaching Great Depression levels. And if we go in particularly to further lockdowns through, you know, uh, outbreaks in the future, we could see these great spikes in suicide and serious distress for people. So my point is we need to get prepared for a suicide pandemic that is going to coincide with the health pandemic. We need to take preparations for both. Now, what can you do? Now, last time I shared with you the warning from Dr. David Jobes, who's director of the Catholic University of America's Suicide Prevention Lab, and he warned that well-intentioned competent therapists in every way who lack specific training in suicide prevention can have disastrous consequences. 
I have uh, studied counseling, but I don't have suicide prevention training. It, uh, if it came up, it was a, just you know a quickie, so to speak, a topic among dozens rather than specific training in suicide prevention. And he said that many counselors do not have any training in suicide prevention. And even though if you go to uh, websites for counselors and they check off specialties, um, they'll check, you know, suicide prevention, even though they haven't had training in it. So one of the things that you can do if you know of a friend or a family member or a member of your parish, uh, when you suggest for them to go to a therapist, I just caution that make a phone call first. You do this. Do this on behalf of your friend or your loved one. And you ask two questions of the therapist. One, do you have specific training in suicide prevention? And it's nothing negative if they don't, but I dare say you are taking a risk by putting somebody who's already in distress in the hands of an untrained therapist regarding suicide prevention and self-harm prevention. Okay, second question, besides the training, do you have clinical experience with cases of threatened suicide or self-harm? Okay, do you have training and do you have experience? And if you get yes to both, then that might be the a good therapist to investigate and recommend to your friends. Now, <laughs> this is the hard part, is finding one. We get a lot of calls here, you know, people looking for counselors and the Carolinas or in whatever area the folks are calling from that hear this broadcast. And sometimes it's very difficult to recommend competent counselors. And remember, as many as half of regular therapists don't have suicide training and three quarters of marital therapists don't have suicide prevention training. So here's something you can do. And there's a crisis right now in front of us, and I'm giving you something to do. It might sound silly, but somebody's going to do this and make a big difference. Okay. It's a way that you can uh, basically uh, wake up your chancery, your parish office, your deacon. Uh, you call and ask for the names of counselors who are trained in suicide prevention and have experience. Not just the name of a counselor, but a counselor with suicide prevention training. And the names of priests, because many priests are trained in counseling, the names of priests with suicide prevention counseling. Now, I can almost predict what you're going to hear back. Uh, you know, I don't know. But here's the good that will come from your taking just a couple of minutes to make a phone call. There's a pornography pandemic right now across the entire world thanks to the internet. Okay, so here I am 
involved in family life ministry. We have outreach around the world, every state in the country, doing Catholic men's conferences. I was one of the pioneers of this thing all around the country, and I was completely clueless about the pornography pandemic. Clueless until we got a call from the Couple to Couple League. And they called us because they were getting calls from Catholic wives who were saying, we're having trouble with pornography in our home and our marriage, and um, do you know of anything that can help with this? So the Couple to Couple League called us because we were supposed to be on the front end of what's going on with Catholic men. This is, this is mortal sin. This is just talking about somebody's eternal welfare. And I didn't have a clue. It wasn't until I was at a conference with uh, Jeff Cavins, and it was a Catholic men's conference. I can remember it. You know, there's certain things that happen in your mind. I can remember I was in my biology class when President Kennedy was shot, one of those things, or what happened on 9-11. Well, I can remember Jeff Cavins just, just very briefly mentioned pornography in his talk. He was the first talk of the day, and I was right after Jeff. Jeff grabbed me and pulled me into the men's room and said, Steve, when I mentioned pornography, he goes, all the guy's eyes started tearing up. I mean, these are good men and everything else, but here's, here's the kind of Catholic man who would sacrifice a Saturday to come learn how to be a better husband and father, and something's going on with pornography. So uh, my talk was next, so I brought it up too, and it's pretty obvious what was going on. But I am saying is, this started with Catholic wives calling, saying, have you heard of other Catholic families having a problem with this? Where do you get help for this? I started writing and offering some materials on this stuff that was literally years before any diocesan or bishop statement on pornography or the USCCB. You know, we were ahead of it by years. And why were we ahead of it? It was simply because somebody got on the phone and started calling and asking about who has resources for this. And I, you know, we, we had to come up with them. So I'm going to bring it back to the suicide prevention. If, if right now your bishop's office got a dozen calls over the next week asking, can you give me the names of counselors or priests trained in counseling for suicide prevention and have some experience in this? And they'll probably say, well, we know counselors or we know priests who are trained in counseling, but how about the suicide prevention? And that's all it took for us to get going at the Family Life Center. And we needed to get going, and it was just a few phone calls. And again, this sounds like a very simple thing, but just call your parish, ask the exact same thing, because it's going to come up. And what does a priest do? I mean, he could be blindsided. Somebody comes and confession said, Father, just, just, you know, I've been thinking of harming myself. Well, what do you mean? I've been thinking of killing myself. What is a priest supposed to do right then and there? Well, it's good to have a plan. We're going to be talking about developing that plan, okay? So um, now, how do you uh, determine if somebody is in emergency need of help or serious need of help? Like most problems, it's good not to freak out, okay? If there's a fire, you don't want to freak out. Um, if there's a medical emergency, you don't want to freak out. You want to know what to do. And so when somebody you know, a friend, a family member, 
a coworker, you notice something's wrong, um, you know, and suicide is three quarters of suicides are by men. So wives have a, I don't know what it is, kind of a barometer for what's going on in their husband's lives. You'll pick it up, okay? But what you want to do is bring it out. Uh, you want to find out what's going on inside. And here are two simple ways to try to determine the level of stress and the and the need that's present, okay, for trained therapists in self-harm prevention. Okay, question one, if they mention or acknowledge that they're going through a, a, a very tough time, then ask something like, I don't know if you've ever been in the hospital and like after an operation or something, um, they'll ask you on a scale of one to 10, you know, what's your pain level? Well, just do the exact same thing. In other words, on a scale of one to 10, what number best describes your struggles right now or your pain of what you're going through right now? And, you know, if it <laughs> comes out at nine or 10, okay, that means it's high. Okay? You can figure that one out. But then you ask a second question, and this is a pretty important follow-up question. Then you ask the person who's depressed and potentially suicidal, at least you might think they might be, um, what have you done or what can you do to reduce this pain? Okay. Now, number one question identifies that person's subjective level of pain, but the second question identifies the person's belief or lack thereof that the pain can't be reduced. Okay. If they say, well, you know, uh, I'm just talking to some guys, you know, it seems like the whole world's crashing in. If, if I can spend just an afternoon fishing, uh, it, the whole world seems to come back together. In other words, you know, my economic stress that I'm always with just, just seems to at least give me a couple of hours of going away or whatever. And I'm just trying to use an, uh, an illustration in other words, uh, there's some kind of coping mechanism to reduce the pain. That is actually a very good sign. But if the person seems to indicate that there's nothing they can do, there's no one who they can be with that seems to reduce their pain, and there's nothing they see in the future that pain isn't going to go away, then that's the point when a person can have serious thoughts of suicide or self-harm, okay? Uh, when they think that the pain can't be reduced and will not be reduced in the future. And as a result of that, you want to refer to a trained therapist. And if you wait till that situation, if everybody waits to that situation, it will be like, well, I can think of, sorry, but is trying to buy cases of toilet paper at Costco before the coronavirus. Everybody waits until it's too late and then you're in a crisis again, just trying to find basic necessities. Let's not wait. Let's make some calls. Let's find out. And so the secretary in the parish office says, oh, yeah, I've got a name for you. Yeah, I've got a priest who's trained not only in counseling, but specially trained in this. And maybe through those phone calls, if there isn't anyone trained, we can kind of stir the nest to have folks trained to help people. 
Okay, here's another one that you should be aware of. And uh, actually, I, I saw this and then it came back to me. I've got in my hand now an article from the Journal of the American Metals Association, their psychiatry journal, peer-reviewed, and it's talking about suicides and the coronavirus, a perfect storm. And here's something that they recommended. And it's, it's something that I never thought of, but words are important. Words form thoughts. Words communicate thoughts. Thoughts impact people. Uh, the little saying of children, you know, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. Words do hurt, can hurt very deeply. Okay. And they recommend we stop using the words social distancing. Because what happens if people are in a situation like I just described, a high level of pain, a very low expectation of that pain ever going away and no coping mechanisms for that pain to be reduced, they withdraw within. And that's one of the signs of a potentially suicidal person. They start cutting off uh, relations with friends, with family, uh, kind of kind of like the turtle going inside the shell, so to speak. And social distancing, according to the Journal of the American Metal, Medical Association Psychiatry, says that's not what we need to be saying. Uh, this is my description, but it's like saying a leper, uh, stay away. Now, we need to say we need to engage in physical distancing, and that's fine, and that's very appropriate, but not social distancing. The social distance needs to be narrowed. Now, how do you do that in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic and all that? you got to be wise about it, but you don't want a social distance. You want a physical distance. Words are important. Words have meaning. Words impact human beings, and I think they're right on the mark. I don't always agree with the um, psychiatric community, but in this one, I'm 100% with them. And so we don't want to have social isolation because that's one of the things that does lead to suicide. We've got a crisis right here on our doorsteps. Uh, Just while I'm here in the article, uh, a couple of things they they do mention. Um, Weekly attendance at a religious service has been associated with a five-fold lower suicide rate compared with those who do not attend. Five-fold reduction in suicide. Who is the most competent institution in the entire United States capable of helping people through difficult times? It seems to be the religious services that are by many of our governors, declared non-essential. Pot shops, liquor stores, abortion clinics can stay open, but churches? Should we have a total shutdown of everything for the church? Is that a good idea? I don't think it is at all. Now, do you have to do things differently? Yes. Do you have to do things carefully? Yes. Can we come up with some alternatives to really help people and not social distance? between shepherds and sheep, I think there could be some ways to do this. And lo and behold, the five-fold lower suicide rate by those who attend 
religious services. Pretty good. All right. I need to get to the safety plan. It used to be that if somebody was hospitalized for a suicide threat, they'd be in the hospital for a few days, examined and released if they were willing to give a promise, a contract, sign a contract that they wouldn't commit suicide. And they found out that that was actually a worthless thing to do because it didn't prevent suicide one bit. What they have now come up with, and I think is very wise, is a safety plan. And you don't need to be hospitalized and released from the hospital to to, to develop a safety plan to know how you could help somebody. And the safety plan, I have it in front of me, it says, first of all, warning signs. So, okay, if if you're a a spouse of a person who's going through a very difficult time, um, the thoughts, the images, uh, a crisis developing, in other words, warning signs that you are in a troubling situation. So if you know you're in a troubling situation, you're falling into deeper depression, step two, what do you do? Coping strategies. What can I do to take my mind off my problems? Um, In other words, what can I do? You know, some people um, go jogging or a bike ride or walk in a park or whatever it is, paint a picture, something that helps relieve that you can do, the person depressed, and and again, family members can encourage another family member to engage in these things. Step three, again, this is very practical stuff. You notice there's no counselors yet or anything else. This is, and by the way, this, following this safety plan followed with follow-up calls, just encouragement calls to somebody who had suicidal thoughts, cuts the suicide rate in half. Okay, churches are the best, five-fold reduction, but safety plans are number two with a 50% reduction in suicide rates. Step three are what people can provide distractions. You know, somebody who's a good friend who isn't going to depress you but lift you up or something you can do with, uh, an activity with, um, can be a great help. And that's I'm not talking about a friend who's going to be your counselor or whatever, but just something you enjoy doing that can, can relieve the pain. Remember, if the pain can be relieved and there's signs that the pain can be relieved, then the person still has hope. Step four, people whom I can ask for help. You know, there are some people who can help. You don't necessarily need to be a priest or a professional counselor just to help other people. There, there are those people, and you put their names down and their phone numbers. Step five are the clinicians, the therapists who are trained and have experience. And you have more than one in case you can't get them on the phone when you need them. And then finally, they list the suicide prevention hotline. Following these just simple steps can reduce the suicide rate by 50% and can be reduced fivefold by interaction with a faith-based community. How about that? I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 286 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to learn more about Catholic family life.